Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, this is going to be the second episode of my interview with Rory McDougall. In the last episode, we left when he arrived in the Caribbean, and we'll, we'll carry that interview as far as it goes today. Before we get there, let me do... Uh, before we get there, let me give you a couple... But before we get there, let me... But just to bring you up to date, <laughs> my elk hunt and deer hunt were a bust this year. Bambi lives another year. Uh, it, it ended yesterday. And I was really disappointed. I had expected to have a good season this year, but I didn't. And life goes on. Looks like I have to go buy beef at, uh, at the grocery store this year. I buy my protein just like everybody else does. All right. Quick. All right. If you... I want to get you to sign up for the email list. And my incentive for doing that is if you're a new sailor and you want to learn the terminology of sailing and some of the techniques of sailing, I have eight free audio lessons that are the first eight of 16 of my Sailing Learn to Sail audio series. And this one is for the ASA 101 series, the first exam, which is a basic keelboat certification for the American Sailing Association. So if you sign up for my email list, you can get eight of those lessons free. And if you like them, hopefully you'll buy some of the other. And if you like them, hopefully you'll pay for the other eight lessons and possibly buy some of the other audio lessons I have. I have audio lessons for the ASA 101, the 103, which is the basic coastal cruising certification, and the ASA 104, which I think is what most people listening to this podcast are really interested in, and that is to be able to go and bareboat charter a boat in some exotic location like the Mediterranean. That's really about all I have this week. Staying busy building my cabin. So without any more ado, let's get on to my interview with Rory. I'm back with Rory McDougall. Rory, the last time that you were on online with me, we were talking about your trip across the Atlantic. Actually, I guess we'll summarize what we talked about the last time, and that was episode, I think it was 113 on the podcast. And this should be episode 115, if I'm correct. So you built your catamaran cookie you sailed it down to the canary islands you got a crew member a mad german crew member what was his name again uh, that was klaus yeah klaus yeah and then you sailed across arrived in saint martin you had about twenty dollars <laughs> each of you had about twenty dollars when you arrived and all right so you arrive in saint martin almost penniless you have a, new, a nice meal, you get a bottle of rum, you celebrate. Now, tell us what happens now. Well, um, as the story goes there, Franz, um, 
We got a, a big uh, sack of rice and some fishing hooks just so that we wouldn't starve for the coming weeks if we didn't find work. But I'd actually been to St. Martin before on some previous sort of voyages uh, crewing around. And so I knew that there was a um, pretty good chance to get some work there. Uh, and within within a week, I got a job on a charter boat uh, doing um, redoing its headlining inside. And Klaus got a job on somebody's roof, uh, I think, ashore doing some re-roofing. And so we were gainfully employed with a, within a very short time and uh, starting to build our cruising kitty back up again. Uh, so that was the primary reason for heading to St. Martin straight away is to, to rebuild our uh, cruising kitty. And um, so we did that pretty effectively, uh, got, got to work for a month or six weeks or so. And then we wanted to play a little bit before heading on again. So we, we sailed down island, down to Sabre, Stacia, St. Kitts, and did a little circuit around there. And then sailed Cookie back up to St. Martin, ready for the Heineken Regatta, which we entered in. And um, had lots of fun, lots of good parties ashore, as you can imagine. And uh, one of the multi-hull races, we actually didn't come last. <laughs> <laughs> because we were up against the big, uh, the big 60-foot uh, Peter Spronk cats that do the regular day sails over to St. Bart's and around the area. And, of course, we were trailing in their wake from uh, about the first second of every day. But um, one day we got round the, uh, the island and were sailing up to the finish line in Marigot. And lo and behold, there looked like this, this boat upside down. And it was, I think, the eagle, a 60-foot cat that capsized just at the uh, last mark before uh, going into Marigot. And... Uh, we managed, obviously, to, uh, to to get ahead of that <laughs> and, uh, and and get a slightly better result that day. But we had lots of fun, and um, and then it was time to move on again. Uh, so we, we headed off towards Panama um, because we'd spent quite a bit of time in St. Martin. We'd eaten into the cruising um, season of, of, of sort of spring. So it was already um, early April that we sort of set off. And so we headed straight across the Caribbean Sea, thousand miles straight down to the San Blas Islands off Panama and what a beautiful paradise that was back then I'm not sure what it's like these days but uh, back in 92 um, there's about 400 islands strung off the uh, the, the Atlantic um, or the Caribbean side of, of Panama and the Kuna Indians uh, inhabit the area and they're just very friendly but they they love to live in a very sort of um, I guess, um, back to basics way, you know, their, their historical, um, their way of life is living in palm, palm frond uh, shacks and they got, um, dugout canoes that they sail out and row back in and you hardly even see any modern intrusions into their way of life. Rarely do you see any outboards or, um, or, uh, or radios and, and, and watches or all those sorts of things are sort of fairly, well, were fairly alien to them. Um, no, no guest houses ashore at the time, uh, certainly on the islands. So it felt like a real privilege. And it was the first time I'd been sailing on Cookie and found a, a place really off the beaten track that um, you felt like you were privileged being a, being a, a yachty, uh, arriving there and, and meeting with the, with the local folks and, and just getting to see the beautiful, um, beautiful islands, loads of fishing to be done uh, and that sort of thing. So Klaus and I, I think we spent about 10 days in the San Blas, living it up and, uh, and really getting uh, close to nature there before uh, heading around the corner to Cologne and the start of the, uh, 
of the rigmarole of getting through the Panama Canal. Now, was your, your, was your trip across the Caribbean weather-wise, how was it? Um, it was a piece of cake, really. We, um, we set off from St. Martin and, you know, straight, straight line, I guess you just, um, just a little bit south of west, west southwest as a course to get into the corner of the Caribbean Sea. And uh, we had uh, lightish, lightish easterlies to start with. And then they built, as we got closer to the uh, Colombian coast, we had good sort of um, 25, 30 knots at times and uh, actually got our best day's run close to there uh, at about 178 miles logged one day uh, under under the wind vane so um, lots of surfing going on and uh, lots of fun um, but we had quite a quite an interesting fishing experience about a day out from St Martin because we were just sailing along with the with the light winds and uh, the the lure tra- trailed behind suddenly became bar tight and the boat slewed and stopped in the water and I thought Christ what's going on here um so we, we quickly doused sail and just ripped it down to the deck and i started pulling back on the um on the fishing line uh, to see what we'd sort of hooked into and um all i can say is i'm pretty glad we didn't get to the end of the line <laughs> it uh, i never know what was there franz it was uh, it was just suddenly the line went uh, loose again uh, and there was this big upwelling of water, like something down deep had just swished its big tail, and this water just sort of whooshed up to the surface and spread out. Um, so whether we hooked into the back of a big basking shark or uh, or some other whale that was just pretty much asleep on the and just below the surface, I don't know. But um, I'm pretty glad we didn't have to really get to uh, to investigate. <laughs> You know, what, one of my goals is to get somebody on, on, the, uh, on the podcast that's going to talk to us about fishing off of a boat because I've just trailed lines off my boat. I've never had a, um, a reel or anything like that. But uh, tell me about the, uh, the equipment you had. I know you, had, you told me about your lures in the last episode, but what, what pound test line did you use? Did you have a fishing pole? Did you have a, a, a reel? What did you have? Yeah, no, nothing sophisticated like that, uh, Franz. Just uh, pretty much like you, you probably have. I just had a um, a big uh, spool, a, a, a plastic um, round spool that uh, um, that I used to just wind by hand the line in and uh, and tied it away on that. And I guess it was probably about um, what 50 meters or so of line. And it was actually that sort of um, what I used to use was the what we call in the UK is crab line. It's a bright orange twisted filament line that uh, you normally have on your little um, lines to drop off the side of piers and things like that to catch crabs uh, when you're a kid. And I put two of those together all the way out to a, to one of the heaviest sort of stainless traces that I could uh, pick up. And then, you know, hooks pretty much as big as your finger uh, of your index finger when you bend it over like a hook shape. Um, because I just, during our ex- you know, earlier experiences um, fishing, you know, you've got to have really heavy gear um, out in the open ocean, um, because even small fish have got pretty big mouths, and if they're hungry enough, they'll still <laughs> jump on that hook. Uh, so, so really, we were just back to basics like that, trolling a, a line from behind onto a cleat, and I guess what I used to do is just put a bungee cord uh, a couple of feet down from the cleat, and pull it to one side and put it with a clothes peg so that if a fish came, fish came on, you heard a bit of a snap of the line because the clothes peg um, 
pinged off and, uh, and, and you, you're aware of something at the behind. And one of the best experiences, I think I might have touched on it last time, about when we were becalmed and uh, we had uh, the Dorado just sort of snapping at the, at the hooks because we'd been dangling them in a calm and then we suddenly took off with some breeze. So they must have been interested with the, um, with the calm jigging of the boat up and down on the, um, on the, sort of, on the surface. Um, but another experience I had is just um, watching the Dorado in the waves behind following the boat, just coming up slowly and, and investigating the lure. And I had the fishing line in my hand at the time and I remember just seeing the um, seeing this three foot long Dorado finally pluck up the courage, or, or inquisitive, or hungry enough to, to to strike the bait, or strike the lure. And I I saw all of that going on as I had the line in my hand, and I felt it tug, and I tugged back, and and then we wrestled each other on our way in. So that was pretty um pretty full on um. To eyesight type fishing <laughs> now now did you have a monofilament leader so it was a twisted line so it wouldn't monofilament just turns itself into big knots if you don't deal with it right so you had a twist or a, a woven line more than a, or a twisted line more than a, a monofilament line but did you have a monofilament uh, leader or a clear like leader of any sort or just did you tie the hooks right on to the to the to the other line no, what I did was, uh, as I said, um, the, the twisted sort of uh, orange line would, would head all the way out. And um, they wouldn't really twist. They would, they would twist together because there was two of them running in parallel um, on the same, effectively the same line, making the same um, same strength of line that uh, I needed. So they wouldn't really twist together. They sort of lay quite happily there. But uh, at the end, what I had was a big swivel and then a... Um, probably about a, a three, four foot long steel or, or stainless steel trace. Okay. Call it a leader. Okay. That's what, yeah, um, you call it a trace, I call it a leader. So that's what it is. Leader, yeah, yeah. And that, that, that obviously made it a little bit more invisible um, between the hook and the, and the bright orange line. Um, and, um, and obviously I, I used, I didn't really use much in the way of weights. I, uh, I would try and put a bit of a fishing fishing like a, the, the round ball type lead weight at the head end of, of the homemade lure or the lure, plastic sort of squids that we pick up every now and again. And, um, and that would normally be enough to just drop it just, you know, just a few inches below the surface um, as, you, as you're going along. I never needed them to be too deep. All right. So you come around to Colon. And now the adventure begins to get through the Panama Canal. And you're, all this time you're sailing with, without a motor. Did you have problems getting in and out of ports with, without, without your motor? Or were you able to maneuver? Obviously, you were able to maneuver fairly well. Or did you get toes once in a while? We, got, um, we, we were coming in and out pretty, pretty well. We, um, I mean, while we were in St. Martin, one of the fun experiences we had while we were working um, five days a week and then had the weekends off, we felt like we sort of put our toes back in the rat race again. And, um, but in the, in St. Martin, they've got Simpson Bay Lagoon, which is where we had cookie. And, uh, that's quite a, you know, so about two or three miles across this protected lagoon. And they had a few, um, a few beach bars on the edge. So on the weekends, we'd just take cookie with some friends and just sail around the inner lagoon there with, uh, with an esky aboard with a few cold beers and then um, pull up to a beach bar or two. So I got, I got a bit of a kick out of uh, sailing my transatlantic um, yacht 
uh, up to a beach bar and tying up with all the other tenders that were there and jumping <laughs> over, having a few rums and then sailing off again. It just, it felt quite neat. <laughs> um, but, um, but as far as um, being maneuverable, um, Cookie is, is very nimble and um, we used to get, just get used to the fact that uh, you could put her into some small spaces and uh, I had oars aboard. Uh, the same for the inflatable dinghy, so sort of, I don't know, five, six-foot uh, wooden oars. And um, if Ava got becalmed or needed quickly to shove the bow around, um, you know, just, just jumping onto one corner of the boat and paddling hard for a few seconds gave her a little boost one way or the other. So, no, she was very maneuverable. Um, but the Panama Canal obviously did present a big obstacle a big man-made obstacle effectively to, to try and negotiate because um, you've normally got to get through under your own steam. So uh, I had to start the negotiation uh, process with, um, with the port officials and the port captain to see what could be done. And um, in my mind, uh, Franz, I, I thought the easiest way to, to approach the whole thing would be to just get in touch with one of the uh, big ships in the anchorage there and ask them if they could use a deck crane and just quickly lift Cookie up, plonk her down on the, uh, on the aft deck of, uh, of the ship, steam on through, and then plonk me down on the Pacific side in Balboa, and job would be done quite, quite easy, quite quick. Obviously, Cookie being a cat, I, I could make a rope bridle off each corner, you know, around the beams, and uh, drop the mast in, in, in a very short period of time and, uh, and just get the boat easy to lift up and on. So th I, I started, um, started this process by literally sailing around the, the anchorage at Cologne and uh, shouting up the sides of the big ships because I didn't have VHF at the time. And, uh, and it was quite, quite a hard way to uh, approach it, really. A bit naive, obviously. <laughs> Because uh, I was trying to talk to the ships and shout up to the crew. And most of the time, you got these uh, folks just shouting back, waving and, and smiling sweetly and saying, oh, you know, there's obviously these very friendly yachties uh, shouting and waving at them. And they don't understand a single thing we're saying. Um, but finally, we got, to, got this, other, this other ship that was getting um, fueled up. So it had a fuel barge alongside. And we were able to indicate what we wanted. So we were able to pull alongside the fuel barge, tie up. I quickly put on a shirt and uh, managed to scale up onto the side of this um, smallish freighter um, that was from Chile. And I asked the crew if I could meet the captain. They said, yeah, yep, yeah, go ahead. It should be where to go. So I uh, went downstairs and uh, met the, uh, the captain who was uh, in his Mickey Mouse T-shirt and surf shorts. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we shook hands and discussed, you know, certain matters, fellow men of the sea and all that sort of thing. And... Um, he was actually very good. He said, yeah, look, you know, if you, if you can get the assurances from the port captain, written assurances that we won't get charged ex extra cargo because we're carrying you through uh, and we won't be liable for any of your, you know, any, any damage that might happen if, if we do damage your boat. If you get all those assurances, then I don't see why we can't get you through. But he said, you better be quick because we're leaving in four hours to get through the canal. Oh. So, of course... On we, on we, we rush over to the uh, shoreline, beach cookie. I rush over to the port captain and uh, had quick words with him. I think he raised his eyes to the ceiling as he saw me come in again uh, and uh, said, uh, well, look, let me see what I can do. And he was actually very good. He tried making the calls 
to his different departments to make sure nobody had an issue. And it seemed to be going well until the final phone call to the chief ad measurer, the guy that his department comes out and measures every cargo ship or, and yachts to, to figure out the, um, the, the, the fee that you have to pay, which is effectively the volume of your craft. And uh, they obviously thought it was highly regular and highly uh, unusual that this would be going on. And they said an unequivocal no. <laughs> so we were back to square one, which was really just to talk to the other yachties in, in the harbor there and, um, and, and slowly make up a, an acquaintance and see if we couldn't get a tow through, which is what we did in the end. We found this uh, British um, uh, Swan 42, I think it was in the end, a nice couple aboard and uh, very happy to to tow us through. So that was a whole bunch of paperwork to organize. I had to drop the mast on Cookie so that once, because we, we, we would only get towed abreast. Oh, me? okay. Mm-hmm. Side by because, side then. Uh, side by side, yeah. I had to raft up alongside with lots of fenders and spring lines and, and, and things like that. Because obviously, um, as you're going into the locks and having to stop at a certain position, and throw your lines ashore to all of the uh, line handlers. You can't have this sort of wayward cat being towed um, 30, 40 feet behind, suddenly crashing into the back of a nice expensive swan. <laughs> so, yeah, we had to tow, tow abreast, and uh, I had to drop them off so that obviously all the lines could be handled backwards and forwards up, inside, up, up the side deck of the swan without any uh, hindrance from Cookie's mast. So it all worked out well in the end. Um, we, had a, we had to have a pilot to come down and pilot Cookie through. But of course, he took one look at Cookie alongside and stayed with his mate that was in the nice, comfortable cockpit on the Swan. Even though you were effectively one boat, they still required a pilot for you then. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's all, it's all the technical sort of side of it, isn't it? If you pay it, then they have to deliver it. And, and it's all the sort of red tape. It was a little bit when I, you know, when I set off at the age of 21, I kind of wanted to get away from all that side of life and and the rat race and bureaucracy and uh, that sort of thing. And, and living aboard Cookie without engines, without electrics, without um, communications was very much getting back to, back to the simplicity of life, um, very much so. so. So having to sort of dip your toe back into all of this rigmarole of, um, of organizing the canal was a bit stressful, but um, it worked out okay. What did it cost you to go? And I think back then the Panama Canal was still owned by the United States, wasn't it? Or was, had, it been, had it been turned over by then? It was in the process of, I know in the 80s, it was basically a 20-year process. Throughout the whole 80s, the, um, the U.S. said, okay, look, you look over our shoulder as far as Panama goes uh, and, and see how we're running things um, and, and, and obviously take stock. And then through the 90s, um, the Panamanians started, running the canal with the Americans basically just looking over their shoulder to make sure everything was still sort of running as it should. And I think it was literally the turn of the century that it uh, got fully turned over to Panamanian um, sort of um, authorities and that sort of thing. So, yes, it was still sort of a joint venture when we went through. And, um, well, it cost $50 to have the ad measurer come out uh, in his big launch and measure Cookie up, and that was the fee to get measured. And because of Cookie's um, rather small cargo space, 
And the actual fee for her to go through was $6. And then I, I had a few other charges because, I, of course, we had paperwork to sort out for getting a tow through from another yacht and that sort of thing. So I think in the, in the end, it cost me about $75 US at the time. And, of course, you just, I've still got the nice um, Panama Canal um, uh, cardboard um, certificate with your number on. So if ever I need to go through again with Cookie, I guess I just need to... Um, present that card with my number on it and I can I can sail on through. So you won't have to be <laughs> measured again then, huh? No, I don't think so, no. Hopefully I'll still be on record, yeah. So um so yeah, that's uh, it was very inexpensive. I think it's gone up a lot since then. Yeah, yeah. I would assume so. Yeah. Mm. So you got so, through. Did you did you uh, stop on the lake? I know there's a lake in the middle or do you have to pretty much proceed all the way through on on the same day? No, we we were we were in a bunch of, I think, eleven sailboats. So we had we we they they organised it that we went through pretty much on our own without any other big ships coming into the lock with us. Um, so it ended up being quite a nice flotilla and um, quite sociable. And we stayed in the um, in the Gatun Lake um, overnight, uh, sort of a bit more than halfway. Uh, and uh, and so we all sort of anchored up and jumped in for a nice cooling swim. Uh, a boat came along and picked up all the pilots and took them ashore. And then we got the uh, pilots delivered again the next morning and, and off we went and, and did the final sort of uh, Miraflores locks down to the uh, Pacific side um, the next day. And we were through by about lunchtime, I think, um, uh, on the second day. And it was a very um, what's the word, iconic kind of view coming down the, the last locks because you've got the um, – I think it's called the Bridge of the Americas in front of you, um, big sort of suspension bridge over the uh, over the canal, um, and uh, it really did feel like the gateway to the Pacific. And, uh, and after after going through all of that uh, rigmarole of getting towed through and and all the paperwork, it felt like uh, we were free again to just sort of have nothing but. Uh, Ocean miles ahead of us uh, that were fairly easily um, tackled as long as you have just the patience uh, to to deal with it. So um, it was a it was a good view to see, and uh, we pulled into the Balboa Yacht Club, picked up a mooring there, and uh, and to be honest, that's actually where Klaus and I said goodbye to each other at that point. Um, he, um, I think we we got we probably run to the end of our sort of uh, happy friendship at that point. Uh, I was pretty fired up to get across the Pacific to get to New Zealand at this at this stage and uh, didn't have very much money again because we'd stocked the boat so full of rice and pasta and, and, and porridge oats and beans and lentils and all the good dried staples in St. Martin at the cash and carry before we left. Uh, so I didn't have a lot of actual cash, but... Uh, as long as I kept at sea and stayed away from the um, the flesh spots and the... <laughs> And the expensive ports, uh, I reckon I could still get to New Zealand. So that wasn't really what was what Klaus was uh, looking for. He wanted to stop off at a lot of the places and enjoy life and and go to the uh, to the to the um, more sort of social spots along the way. So he decided to jump off and uh, he joined a boat going back to the Caribbean, actually, where he could uh, get back up to the islands up there. Okay, so he headed back through the canal then, huh? That's right. Yeah, yeah. He sort of headed off back through the canal. And uh, that kind of left me again a little bit in trepidation because 
you know, although we decided that it was probably best that we parted at that point, um, I knew how badly I'd uh, handled the single-handed sailing um, in the early days getting down the coast of Europe. So I, I felt a lot more confident by this point in my navigation, in my sextant work, and in Cookie as a whole, just just handling her at sea. And I guess I'd also sort of mellowed with my, my voyaging outlook um, by this point, having crossed one ocean and being successful. So... So I still had quite a bit of trepidation, but thought, well, I'll, I'll give it another go, and uh, we'll head off, uh, head off across the Pacific, and and see how far I can get before I go a bit, um, bit crazy <laughs> with loneliness. So you decided to go single-handed again. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, what we, what was happening at the time? I, uh, I think this was about, uh, this was early May, so pretty, pretty typical time to set off. But uh, a lot of the boats, uh, cruising boats that had gone off down to the Galapagos were radioing back on their short, you know, their SSBs to other, other yachts in, in Balboa, just saying that they'd had to motor pretty much the whole way, that there was very calm winds. Um, and, uh, and obviously, once you get down to the uh, Galapagos, there's quite, uh, quite strong currents that can affect you. So, so they had, you know, maybe about a whole week of motoring just to get there. So I, I set off uh, from Balboa with, again, an, a, a sort of a bit of a backup plan. I had $200 to my name. And as I said before, if, as long as I stayed away from expensive places, I think I could sort of get pretty much to New Zealand. So that ruled out French Polynesia in my mind, because at the time, all of the um, advice was that uh, you had to have enough money to post a bond with customs equivalent to a plane ticket home because I guess they didn't want down-and-out yachties arriving and, and looking for work in, in Marquesas or Tahiti and all these sort of uh, places. So, so I thought, oh, well, that rules me out. I, I can't afford any of that. So I, I chose my route to go down to Easter Island. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so I headed down to Easter Island, and I thought, well, all these boats be readying back saying it's going to be as calm as heck. So what, what happens if I if it takes me a a few weeks just to get to the Galapagos, which were about sort of seven, 800 miles along the track, whereas Easter Island is 3,000 miles from, from um, Panama. So I, I had a contingency plan to say, well, I'll pull into the Galapagos, into one of the harbors, and just pull down my mast. Okay, yeah, we were, um, I was heading to the, to the, past the Galapagos and just putting a contingency plan in place to... Uh, to 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 effectively um, have a plan. If it took weeks to get just to the Galapagos with calm winds, then I would pull in, drop my mast, and say to customs, "Look, I want 72 hours free pratique because I have a um, a trouble with my mast. I've got some some repairs to make, and effectively I could request on international law 72 hours of free stay in the harbour without clearing in, without being charged." because I've got a repair to make on the boat. And um, then in, under the cover of night, I would then row around to the other yachties and just start um, you know, buying some baked beans and some water off them if I needed to. Um, but as it happened, uh, when you make contingency plans, quite often you don't need them. So I was actually with Cookie. We were past the Galapagos in about uh, six days because it was light winds, but because we, we set off with the with the northeast and easterlies right along the continent of, of South America there, 
there was virtually no swell because it was an offshore breeze at that point. And uh, so I could set the spinnaker with with the wind vane on, and it was only blowing a force between a force one and two most of the time. So basically between about sort of five to uh, to six, seven, maybe eight knots of breeze. Um, but with the spinnaker up and such calm seas, Cookie was still ticking off a good 100 to 120 miles a day um, in those sorts of conditions. So we made hay, we made uh, good miles, and we got past the Galapagos and, and had Easter Island in our sights. Now, how far is Easter Island from from Panama then? How long a hop was that then? It's a... It's 3,000 miles, and uh, so as, 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 as seemed to be the norm with, with Cookie, although she's got a good turn of speed when the conditions are right, you know, as far as offshore sailing goes, you know, she can, she can average a good six, seven, even eight knots at times. Um, obviously, every voyage, you get your calms of, your spells of calm, you get your spells of maybe headwinds and, and that sort of thing, and that's exactly what happened. We were past the Galapagos in a week. And then we cracked off the next thousand miles in the second week, so we were looking set to do a good um, a three-week trip. And then the last uh, the last sort of thousand miles took two weeks because we got some headwinds and we got calms. And and Easter Island's 27 degrees south, so it's it's out it's pretty much out of the edge of the trade winds and into the variables um, uh, as far as the wind conditions go. So we pretty much ran out of the trades and. Um, Got, uh, got a mixture of conditions, and uh, it took us 30 days, and that seemed to be a norm for a lot of the ocean trips that I did, was uh, about 100 miles a day seemed to be the average that we always seemed to stick to. All right. Now, Easter Island doesn't have that many uh, good harbors, does it? Good anchorages. No, no, it's pretty pretty exposed. It's, a, it's quite a small island. It's about sort of it's a triangular type of shaped island, about five miles across, maybe four miles on the other sort of sides, and uh, and it has quite exposed um, shorelines. There's not very many bays or nooks and crannies to get into, but um, in some ways it was quite lucky because only a year or so earlier than I arrived, they had actually uh, built an international airport on uh, on on Easter Island, and and by international law, aviation-wise, they had to have a big sort of rib type rescue boat because the airport was within a certain you know distance of the sea. They needed a good rescue craft in case there were any accidents. And of course they needed to make a harbor uh, to house that rescue boat. So just, just south of the main bay called uh, Hangaroa, the main settlement, they, um, they made a, a sort of man-made breakwater. And they made a little harbor big enough for about sort of four or five sort of medium-sized um, boats, like sailboats, up to about 30, 35 feet in length. And, uh, and so no, we, we, we pulled into there, and we were very well protected. And we were there for about, we were there for about 10 days in total uh, as, a, as another stay in Easter Island. All right. I'm looking at Easter Island. I'm looking at the airport. It looks like it goes from one side of the island to the other side of the island on the, uh, on the southwest corner of it. So, yeah, okay. Good. So now Easter Island, how long did you stay there? I was there for about 10 days. Uh, again, after, after 30 days at sea, I, I often got to these, these, these sort of remote islands. And one of the first things I needed to do was, first of all, go and see people and talk and, and, uh, and get some social, uh, social interaction going. I, I ended up 
handling the single-handed sailing very well on this point because I'd just got a lot better equipped in my mind. I had a much better uh, outlook on it all, a lot more patience, a lot more sort of a calm way of thinking about things, and a lot more positivity. I decided I would not entertain any negative thoughts at all, whereas before, yeah, sometimes if uh, if the boat was just chilling along at half a knot and and we had thousands of miles to go, you know, if you if you let it, that could start eating you up. Thinking, well, crikey, if only the wind would blow a bit more, and and all these factors that are out of your control, I'd I'd learn to just let go of it all, and just look positive and look over the side and say, well, hey, we're doing half a knot. Hey, that's brilliant, and we're roughly going in the right sort of hemisphere of where we need to go. That's great. And just, you know, just really change up my attitude about it all and become a lot more uh, relaxed and laid back. So I enjoyed the trip down and, uh, and then we, um, we stayed for 10 days. But I had, I had probably one of my most um, thorough investigation by customs of, of the whole round the world trip when I got to Easter Island. <laughs> really did they um, dig they climbed up your both your pontoons and searched everything oh, yeah. absolutely yeah well part part of the reason Franz was because I gave myself a do-it-yourself haircut on the way down well I left Panama and I'd had a bit of a, a a bet with my stepbrother who you know if you remember he he actually ended up leaving just at the 11th hour and didn't didn't sail with me but we had a bet with each other that we'd get uh, to one of the big offshore voyages and we'd We'd grow our straggly beers as we could grow them back then and shave all our hair off and do the kind of ZZ top uh, photo of ourselves. Um, but uh, without him there, I, I sort of said, well, I've got to do this. And this is a perfect time. I'm going to be a month at sea. So I cut all my hair off with a pair of scissors, and, and, but I wasn't game really to attack my head with a, with a razor blade while I was on my own out in the middle of the ocean in case I cut myself badly. I mean, so... I just left it at that, and I think with a pair of scissors as close to the skin as I could get, I looked pretty tufty. I think I looked like I had rabies or something like that. And uh, by the time I got to Easter Island, you know, there I was with my straggly beard, virtually no hair that was growing back, and uh, I had a quite a big dangly conch shell off, off an earring as well at the time. So I looked like I'd, I was a bit of a desperado, possible convict, possible on-the-run type sort of image. Uh, I think I was given off. So hence the, um, the five officials that j jumped aboard the boat with their hobnail boats looking through everything. One of them picked up this bag of white powder really with a gleam in his eye and, uh, and said, what's this? And I was, I, my Spanish wasn't very good, so I had to sort of um, show him what non-skid effect would make on paint. <laughs> so I showed, him, I showed him smooth paint and then the non-skid rough paint. And, and indicated that's what that powder was. <laughs> <laughs> so it was grit and, then, uh, huh? Yeah, it was the sort of the, it was the particles that you have, uh, the little micro beads that you put in the paint to make a non-skid deck. Um, but they they went through. I had tins of porridge oats with a with a um, a foil seal on, and they wanted to you know open the foil seal and then get a spoon and rummage around inside. And they were they were they were certain that I was a drug runner. What, otherwise, why else would I be so desperate to come all this way to, to Easter Island on this silly wee boat? <laughs> now, did you catch fish on the way down? Yeah, we caught, uh, I caught a good-sized Dorado um, about, uh, I think, four or five days out from Panama. 
But then that was the last fish that, funny enough, I caught all the way across the uh, the Pacific because uh, I found uh, that when I was sailing with company, like when Klaus is aboard, you know, your human need of companionship and uh, and uh, and support, that sort of thing, was met. So there, there seemed to be no qualms about throwing over a hook and catching fish and killing something for your own food and that sort of thing. But when I was on my own, in my sort of my my own mind of of Zen, if you like Zen, Rory and the and the sea around him, I didn't. I had no inclination to kill anything. So after I I caught that first Dorado and I ate nothing but fish again for two days because I didn't have any refrigeration aboard, uh, I didn't feel any inclination to fish at all unless I got to the stage where I was running out of food. So I I. I wound in the fishing line for the whole of the rest of the way across the Pacific and left it in the, in the bilge. Okay. All right. So you stayed yeah. there 10 days and then what mm-hmm. was your next landfall? And well, in that 10 days, I got off the boat and had a good uh, walk around the Island to stretch the legs, did some camping down, you know, just did a sleeping bag under the stars. And one of my, I just like to explain one of my memorable sort of, um, uh, events of Easter Island was uh, while I was sleeping down um, by the shoreline, a guy on a motorbike drove past and did a bit of a double take of this guy sleeping down by the shore and came over and, and we started speaking pidgin Spanish. Um, and uh, and so he said, well, look, I work on the farm. There was a cattle farm on the on the other end of the island from the from the actual um, from town. And uh, so he said, well, tomorrow, don't don't sleep rough. Go and see my buddies over there and they'll hook you up. We've got a sleeping cabin and uh, they'll give you some food and, you know, just go and see them. Tell them Hugo sent you. And so sure enough, next day I went over and, uh, and knocked on their door and I was sat down in front of a big, huge cooking pot mm-hmm. and, um, and given a, a big sort of plate of stew and that sort of thing. I don't think the the level on that pot ever got to the to the bottom. I think then they just chucked in more onions and a bit more meat and and everything else, and it just sort of tops it back up again. But uh, that evening, the whole group of uh, guys and and the uh, so the station manager all got together in a pickup truck and went down to the shore with a couple of big cook pots, one with sweet potato, and the guys went out snorkeling and rounding up sort of uh, uh, fish. Into, into a net, into like a drift net that two of the guys held across the mouth of this little sort of cove. So they literally just sort of um, uh, chased these fish into the net, hauled them all out, and we had a beautiful meal of just fish and sweet potato under the stars on the edge of Easter Island, talking as best as I could in, in, in Spanish about the beauty of life and, and what we're all experiencing. So that very much was one of my standout memories of, 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 of the Pacific sure now, Easter Island I've been looking at pictures on Google Earth as as you've been talking and it's a, a pretty barren island isn't it there's a few places that have some forest on it but I guess that's uh, that's that's um, I guess they took down a lot of the trees when they were building the uh, all the uh, the rock the rock uh, faces that they built on the island yeah there's there's various um, there's various theories right where all the trees went obviously there was an idea that a lot of these rock statues needed to be transported so they cut them down for rollers so that the um the statues could be rolled to the various points of the island and, and then put into place um 
then there's obviously the, the whole island was actually owned, I think, by a Scottish um, sheep farmer back in the early sort of 1920s or something like that. And so again, having having no trees and just um, just grassland was perfect for that purpose and that sort of thing. So um, there's a few sort of ideas about why, but they're, they're, yeah, there are virtually no trees. There is a small sort of area of eucalyptus that uh, is now growing that I think has obviously been planted in the last, well, excuse me, it was planted uh, in the last sort of 20 years of, of me getting there. Um, but uh, but no, otherwise it's a pretty barren barren place. Did you feel you were in the steps of Thor Heyerdahl as you were heading there? Well, funny enough, uh, I one of my big um, dreams of of the of the voyage was to go to Easter Island. When I was building my boat in the UK, I had shift work at a uh, at a petrol station at a garage uh, during the nights, uh, just just running the um running the sort of the, the shop and, and the till and serving people and that sort of thing. And so I had some time on my hand occasionally when it went quiet. And I, I was reading Thor Heyerdahl's book about his expedition out there in the 1950s. Uh, I think it's called Aku Aku. And, uh, and it kind of enthralled me and it, it, it became one of my must-see places in the Pacific. So, um, so it was pretty much on my agenda to go there anyway. And um, no, it's, it was fascinating, fascinating to... Um, to get in touch with the Rapa Nuian Polynesians there as well, because they do, there's quite a quite a divide, if you like, because um, they're the indigenous people, but then the Chileans, um, the South American sort of uh, Spanish, they they are protectorates of the islands, so they seem to hold all of the um, the official jobs like customs, immigration, and the banks, and you know the airport, all those sorts of things. Um, they hold a lot of uh, positions like that, and the and the indigenous Rapa Nuians are kind of, I wouldn't say put in their place, but um, left to sort of uh, farm the land as best they can and and fish and and do their sort of subsistence living. So it's a bit of a shame to see that divide, but um, obviously I, I made a lot more friends with the um, with the Rapa Nuians while I was there. Now, you sure. were you able to refresh your cruising kitty at all, or were you just living off? what you still had stored on your boat at the time? Pretty much what I had stored on the boat. And, uh, you know, with that uh, meager kitty that I had, what I was really just um, looking to do is just pay for some fresh fruit and vegetables before I set off on each uh, trip. And this guy, Hugo, that I'd met um, was such a such a generous guy because before I took off, uh, you know, he said, come on. And, and he had fruit trees in his garden. He had a uh, avocado tree. And he forced me, you know, literally forced me. He wouldn't, he wouldn't take no for an answer. I had to shimmy up these trees and pick my own avocados and have a small stalk of bananas and, and bits and pieces. So, you know, their generosity was just absolutely fantastic. So I actually ended up um, leaving with, uh, with a good stock of fresh, fresh fruits and veggies um, on that trip. And then it really was down to just eating a lot of um, beans, um, chickpeas, red kidney beans, black eyed peas, uh, lentils, and that sort of thing for my protein uh, while I was uh, at sea, because obviously I wasn't fishing by this stage, and I wasn't uh, splashing out on luxury items like tins of meat. <laughs> Let me ask you about beans, because did you use dried beans, or were they canned beans? They were dried beans. So again, you, because... you would have to soak them and then cook them quite a while to uh, to eat them then, so you so you 
Does that? How did you cook them? Did you have a pressure cooker that you cooked them in? No, I just had regular saucepans. But I would I would soak them for a long time. I would actually soak them for a day or two beforehand. And where where at all possible, I would leave the you know the soaking in the sun so they would slightly warm up and that sort of thing. And it kept the cooking time down to minimum. Most of the most of the, the actual um. Uh, most of what I had was uh, very small as well. Like the black eyed peas are a lot smaller than, than the red kidney beans. So I didn't, although I took them with me, I didn't eat the red kidney beans a lot. Um, I tended to just go for the smaller ones. And again, they would end up on the, um, on the inevitable pasta or rice um, every night. So I got a little bit tired of it all in the end, but uh, it was just fuel for the belly and, and, and keep going. All right. <laughs> So what uh, what time of year did you sail down from Panama? Well, what time did you leave Panama? What month? And and then you arrived about a month later in Easter Island. Then. Yeah, I left. I think it was uh, earlyish, earlyish May. I left Panama and I got to Easter Island. I think early June, um, and so yeah, that was a month to go there, and. Um, and then from Easter Island, I was, uh, again, looking to just keep the, the long, long, lonely sort of expanses of sea uh, time going because, again, that meant that I, I would, would have more chances of getting to New Zealand without uh, running out of money. So from Easter Island, I was planning to head 3,000 miles west to Rarotonga in the Cook Islands. And uh, that way you're sort of sailing beneath to the south of um, – the Tuamotus, the Pitcairn Islands, and the Gambia Atoll, and those sorts of places. So pretty much, again, just skirting the, the bottom edge of French Polynesia um, all the way to, to, the, to the Cook Islands. So um, I took off, and uh, again, just had quite variable conditions uh, and uh, good easterlies at times. And then after two weeks, we got past the uh, Pitcairn Islands, and... Uh, I was getting a lot of westerlies, and um, and this time out in the open ocean, my 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 kind of um, way of handling the contrary winds was just to sort of heave to or take down the sails and think, well, you know, we're in we're in typically areas of the world where the winds blow from the east or from behind. So if I just take down the sails and wait it out for a day or two, it'll change and we'll get easy sailing again. Um, so I didn't really try and fight the uh, the headwinds too much but they were starting to sort of make a bit of a pattern by this stage it was blowing from from the west uh, for quite a few days and so i thought well i've got to dig deep and 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 keep battling on a bit and i i just hated hated bashing my head against the uh the, the conditions out in open ocean it was pretty rough on cookie and uh, obviously being a cat you've got to sail pretty cautiously um out into the into the waves and that sort of thing so Bit by bit, we were making progress, but uh, I decided that I wasn't going to make 3,000 miles. I needed a bit of respite, so I started looking at the Pacific chart uh, where I could, where, where it was close enough to haul into, and um, and get some rest for a few days. And there were sort of three little dots, like full stops, uh, on my chart, and beside it said the Gambia uh, Islands, and that's all I had to go on. So I thought, well, there's there's islands there. I better go and investigate. <laughs> and so what was kind of very exciting and uh, and interesting was making a landfall in this atoll group of islands that I had really no charts for. 
uh, I had an idea of where they were, obviously, on the Pacific chart, but uh, it became approaching them and navigating through them pretty much back to back to basics, back to Captain Cook's time when you had no charts and you were just eyeballing and looking at the, the colors of the water, looking at the birds, where they're congregating, any signs of seaweed or that sort of thing. So I was using as many as the as I could of the natural um, resources of the ocean around me to, to, to make a landfall. And we made a safe landfall and got in there, got in okay. Now that I'm looking at this group of islands, I assume it uh, it's the right one I'm looking at on Google Earth, and it looks like it's a coral atoll all the way around there. Is that a co coral reef? Is that right? Pretty much. Is there's a there's a sort of it's like an atoll, but instead of some atolls where you've got an unbroken line of coral forming a, a very distinct ring, um, the Gambier Atoll does have a ring of islands and, and effectively a lagoon in the centre, but there are deeper spots and channels. Uh, there's not an unbroken ring of reef that goes right round the outside. Yeah, it looks um, like there's an opening, pretty big opening to the south, uh, southeast on the, on, the, on the group. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And that's pretty much where I approached from, from the southeast. I, I, I made a landfall. It was starting to sort of get dark. I think the wind was from the northwest, and so I anchored um, sort of offshore of one of the fringing reefs on the southeast corner that night and got some sleep. And then when the sun came up the next day and we had some good height of sun for visibility through the reefs, I slowly made my way in under sail. And I remember at the time just passing a tiny little idyllic desert island, probably about the size, you know, probably about, I don't know, three, four hundred yards uh, across and you've got the turquoise water going to sort of yellow and the sandy beaches and, and birds wheeling above and not a person in sight. And I just remember sailing past thinking, you know what? People ha we all have our own idea of paradise. And, and for many of us, that is paradise because, of course, we're, we're living in the, the busy rat race. But for me, coming from sea and not having had any interaction with anybody or, or company, for a couple of weeks in the distance there was a harbor i could see masts and a few buildings and things like that so of course to me that was paradise <laughs> <laughs> you wanted paradise, to talk to people yes <laughs> yeah paradise is a state of mind i had some ears to bend i needed to i needed to do yeah share some stories and hear some stories <laughs> so uh, we made it across to uh, an island called mangareva uh, and uh, actually no i think the harbor's called mangareva and the island was called Ricketia, I believe. Yeah, Port um, Ricketia. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of went to, with trepidation to the uh, port captain, thinking, well, this is French Polynesia. He's going to ask for a bond. But uh, luckily, the guys just sort of welcomed me in and said, uh, you know, here's 30 days stay. And so I asked him about the bond. He said, oh, we don't even have a bank on the island uh, to process anything like that. <laughs> and so... He said, "It's only when you get to the, you know, the busy spots like Tahiti and uh, and um, the Marquesas and all these other larger islands that uh, that they have the banking system and and they can process a bond. Otherwise, these small islands, we we can't do that. So, uh, you know, it was one of those sort of like, oh, now you tell me moments. If only I'd known that. <laughs> uh, but uh, but there we go. I got I got to French Polynesia in the end and." Um, had a fantastic, I think, again, about a week's stay there at, uh, at Mangareva. 
met some fantastic local folks there and uh, and some good people on the on sailboats as well because the only tourists or the only visitors that go there again are, are yachties there's no hotel no guest houses no tourism there except for passing yachties so again you get that real privilege and um, feeling of, of visiting there oh that's great now rory i'm going to cut us off today we've got about an hour right now and uh next time we're going to start in gambaria is that how we say it? Gam- Gambier Islands, the Gambier Islands, and we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, then, Franz, that sounds good. Thanks a lot, Rory. All right, that finishes up this episode. If you like this podcast, tell your friends, family about it. Do me a favor, go into the iTunes directory and write a review, and we'll be back with Rory McDougall in another episode, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. Thank you for listening. Joe, you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You've made me very proud. I was just thinking. Where we might be 10 years from now, you know? (laughs) 